And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now. Hello and welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. It's the last show of 2015, but we don't actually have anything Christmassy or festive or anything like that on the show at all. Uh, don't know how that happened. Um, but we are here as usual to look at the arts, the culture and the people of East London. Uh, but the issues we cover, as ever, go way beyond the East London borders. So wherever you're listening, welcome. My name's Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise and Daniel Manning. It might not be Christmassy, but we do have a great show coming up. Um, We have award-winning writer and performer Rob Orton live in the studio. We'll be chatting to him and hearing him perform some of his work. And we also have Jacob Mukherjee and Kennedy Walker from Take Back the City, who are creating a crowdsourced People's Manifesto for London and putting a normal Londoner up as a candidate for the mayor election next year. And hello from me. Um, We have singer-songwriter Amy Adele joining us for a live session in the studio. We'll be hearing about photographer Sid Shelton and his involvement in Rock Against Racism, both of us as an activist and a photographer. We have independent radio producer Julia Lork, who's with us, and she will introduce some of the work that she's been putting together uh, around the Turbine Hall Festival. But first... Let's visit the Posh Club, where Golden Girls and Silver Foxes get dressed up and hit Hackney for an afternoon of high tea and ooh-la-la. My name's Simon Casson and I'm the producer for Ducky and we run the Posh Club in Hackney which is a club for uh, elegant elders, swanky senior citizens and glamorous golden girls. It runs every Wednesday at St Paul's Church Hall in Stoke Newington from 12 till 3 and it is uber, uber, uber glamorous. My mum was in her 80s and my sister did a tea party for my mum and three of her mates and made them nice sandwiches and served them tea in a teapot around someone's house and they really, really enjoyed it because they didn't get out much. She sort of slightly formalised it and served them properly and my mum told me about it and I thought, hey, that's a good idea. And for 20 years we've been running this thing called Ducky where we put on cabaret and performance and you know we run 20 years at the Vauxhall Tavern which is a gay pub in Vauxhall and so our history and our you know what we do for a living is putting shows on and dancing girls and cabaret and performance art things like that 
So I said to my sister, why don't we combine it? You do the tea and the cakes and the service, and I'll put on the showbiz, and then we'll invite my mum and all her mates and loads of other people. We'll ask everyone to dress up in their best clothes, and we'll see what happens. And uh, so we did, and it was a hit. My name's Dickie Eaton, I'm one of the producers with Ducky, between Simon and myself. We put on all the different events that Ducky has. Posh Club happens in the afternoon because we realise that older people, which is who the event is for, don't always want to be out in the evening. They want to make sure that when the darkness comes that they're not training around the streets, it's easy to get around and it's a cabaret entertainment loving club, I suppose you could say, in a way, in a weird way. Actually, in the early days, we had some things that didn't make it in the final cut. When we first did the club, we showed films. They were a disaster, so we stopped showing them. Then we showed situation comedies on video screen. That didn't work, so we cut it. Then we had a hairdresser doing the lady's hair like as they came in, and uh, that didn't work. But what did work was cabaret, poshcons, uniforms, fancy service, and ooh-la-la. And we definitely have a lot of ooh-la-la. I'm so glad to come here again, and uh, I love to be here. It's a very entertaining place, and uh, the food, the champagne, the cakes, everything is very nice. It's all... uh, paid by the council of course but uh, we, we are highly entertained me and my friend Moses here and my uh, friend Tina we are all very happy to come here every time uh, we are allowed to come six times this season so this is the second time I'm here and I hope hope to come all the six times which is called the posh club for a reason because we want everybody to put on their best Sunday afternoon outfit and come and enjoy themselves I think there's several reasons why people come and why people want to come Um, it's an opportunity for older people to come and dress up and look glamorous and be looked after and be given care and attention and treated in a really beautiful way and in the meantime we're putting different acts on stage some of them are like old musical acts acts that they probably would have seen at some stage in their in their lives but they're not always available to older people at an affordable price and that's what it's also about it's kind of like it's four pounds you can't even get two coffees at a fancy coffee shop these days for four pounds we run two posh clubs at the moment one is in Sussex right in Crawley and one is in Hackney in uh, Stoke Newington the thing is that the shows are completely different in Crawley and in Hackney because in Hackney they like it a little bit spicy 
and they like it a little bit fruity. So we had a ballet dancer the other week with no clothes on, and he worked really well. And we have burlesque dancers and we have fire eaters, and sometimes some of the acts are a little bit scandalous. And if we tried to put that on in Crawley, it would be like, you're not allowed to do that. In Hackney, people are kind of outraged, but they also love it. So we've got Nelly, she's 104. We've got Irene, she's 107. And we've got all these different men and ladies that are very elegant and very posh. And they've been in Hackney for all their life or, you know, since the 50s, say. And they all come together and congregate. And we have a great party. I'm wearing a red dress, as you can see, that red dress, uh, black tights and shoes, funky shoes, <laughs> and, and a chain, lovely, lovely little necklace. Very, uh, very smart. Very smart, yes, yes. So, you know, I'll try to do my best. But um, we did a survey, and we said, in the survey, we said, what's your favourite book? And what's your favourite TV programme, and etc. What's your uh, do you ever go to theatre, things like that? And for their favourite book, half the people put the Bible, and the other half of people put Fifty Shades of Grey. And I think, in a way, that kind of sums up what the uh, spirit of the place is. Just sing the chorus and any other bits you remember. Darling, could you pump up the wireless? Hit it, lovely. Oh, smashing, lovely. I'm talking about lantern, isn't it? You've got to be proud. Yeah. Yes. Probably one of our most diverse clubs that we run, the Posh Club in Hackney. There's a huge range of African Caribbean, Chinese, Asian, white, uh, Irish, you know, kind of like we've got all the bubble that is Hackney comes to the Posh Club in the afternoon. And they all get on in really great style and make new friends and, and have a good time. In Hackney, in between the shows, they all go a bit like bananas and like have a right knees up. It only works if the attendees are willing to join in. If they sit there long-faced, it's their loss. If there's music playing and there's laughter, get up and dance and sing and enjoy yourself, and it becomes infectious. You know, we have some people that come and they may have lost somebody or they may have been a little bit lonely and so they just come out of their shells a little bit and for some it's kind of quite a big thing to come to the posh club because it can be a little bit intimidating sometimes because it's lots of groups of people and lots of people having a good time but then they settle in and they make new friends and everybody's always chatty the volunteers and the people that work here are always looking after people and looking out for those people that might not know anybody and making sure they're comfortable and that they'd, they'd like to meet somebody so it's kind of like that care of of not just bringing them but then making sure that they're by themselves, they make new friends, or they don't need to make new friends. It's kind of like, you know, it's up to them, and we'll just encourage them and look after them to make sure that they, they're doing what they want. Oh, hallelujah. Right, let's have another dance while we get ready for the raffle. So at the Posh Club, we've been really lucky. We got some funding from Hackney Council, so Hackney Council gave us money to provide entertainment and tea and cakes and scones and fanciness to the people of Hackney. And I think Hackney Council were pretty good, you know. It's quite unusual that they gave us the money, I think, from the Public Health Department. And the point of it is, for older folk, happier, healthier in mind and body, you know, mental health, physical health, if you're dancing, if you're meeting your friends, 
it's better than being in your 80s and staying in and watching the telly every day. So the Push Club runs every Wednesday uh, in at St Paul's Church in Stoke Newington until mid-February and bookings can be done via Ducky, that's D-U-C-K-I-E dot co dot UK. Thanks for that. So with us in the studio now is writer and performer Rob Orton, who has done a string of shows at Edinburgh, as well as Gastonbury Festival and the Royal Festival Hall, and whose work has been aired on the BBC and Channel 4. Rob, good to have you with us. Hello. Um, yeah, welcome. Thank you. Um, you've been described uh, in a piece I read um, as a stopper and a thinker. That's, uh, I read that somewhere. Is, is that how you would describe yourself and your work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how would you how would you describe what you do um, um i guess i'm just trying to put things into words really that's what i that's kind of di- this year i kind of came to the conclusion that that is what if i see something and have a strong feeling about it i want to try and convey how i feel about it and the the my favorite way of doing that at the moment is by writing words down and then going to comedy or poetry nights and saying it out loud and that's it or facebook posts mm-hmm. <laughs> that's it so do you see yourself as both a comedian and a poet because it's you've, you've i don't know i don't really i don't i see myself as someone who uh is just trying to get something out of themselves that uh and just looking for a stage to do it on, really. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I like. Sometimes I'm walking to the supermarket, and I might have an idea that makes me laugh. And then uh, I think, oh, I wonder if other people might find that funny, and then go and do it at a comedy night. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they laugh as well. Sometimes <laughs> they don't. But it's quite exciting to think whether, you know. Sometimes I just think of stuff that I find funny, and that's you know that's fair enough. It is fair enough. Um, I saw you perform uh, about eighteen months ago um, at a poetry night called "Bang Said the Gun." Yeah. Um, and there you performed uh, your your piece about faces, yeah. and it's it's um, very quite a long kind of analytical, well, quite thoughtful piece about a very ordinary thing mm. that everyone has a face. Yeah. Um, and Bang Said the Gun, you're you're part of the organising team there as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I got on board about five years ago. It's been running for about 15 years, and mm-hmm. um, we were running it uh, weekly, and then we've taken a break, and now we're, it's going to be at the Bloomsbury Theatre from January, mm-hmm. monthly. But that was really good. It gave me a real, really good opportunity to try things out for my... Edinburgh shows and um, just we just tried to create a really nice atmosphere. It was in the Roebuck pub mm. and uh, yeah, it was it was great. I'm a bit warm. I've got a vest on. <laughs> so I've just started wearing a vest. It is quite a warm, small 
full studio. I think that's yeah. about as Christmassy oh. as this show's going to get. You're yeah. you wearing a vest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's from Marks and Spencer's. Good. That's quite Christmassy. <laughs> nice. And um, speaking of Edinburgh, in in 2013, you you. Um, became quite well known because you you did no, your I faces. Did, I didn't. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I didn't. You became you um, did your faces show. No, I did the Sky Show. Okay. <laughs> um, and you won <laughs> the the Dave Channel Best Gag Award. Yeah. And as we're here, your work isn't really about gags and one-liners, is it? Mm, not really. No, I was d- that that joke was. I heard a rumor Cadbury's are releasing an Oriental chocolate bar. It could be a Chinese whisper, right? And um, there was a person from the uh, Evening Standard in the gig that I did it in, mm. and he must have thought to himself, that is the funniest joke <laughs> of the Edinburgh Fringe <laughs> 2013. And then he took it to the people at the Comedy Channel, Dave, and then they put it to the public and they said, yes, it is. <laughs> And then you were getting all these requests from sort of corporates saying, oh, can you come in and yeah, do, yeah, do yeah, one-liners yeah. for us? Yeah, no, yeah, that was... Uh, but I yeah, had to get back to them and say, well, if you get in, t- in touch with me because of the Chinese whisper joke, that's not really what I'd do. And then I'd send mm. them a link to what I do do, and then they didn't get back to me. <laughs> so um, you've, you've done a, a string of shows at Edinburgh. Yeah. And um, so what have you got coming up for the 2016? Um, I'm I'm currently working on my new show that's all about sleep, Mm -hmm. called The Sleep Show. And um, so my last one was about water, called The Water Show, and it was The Face Show, Uh, then The Sky Show, then The Yellow Show was the first one in 2012. And I just want to try to write about things that I find interesting and... I'm kind of blown away by the fact that uh, we've all been born into this thing that we all, we've all got so much in common, you know, yet. So everyone seems to think that we're all quite different when, you know, we're not really. Everyone, the majority of people are going to go to sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. Or at least in the next two days or three days, everyone will have slept tonight. Mm-hmm. That's quite a good leveller, isn't it? Yeah. Surely everyone's on the same page, but they're not, and that's kind of something that, I don't know, I think, yeah, it's difficult for me to understand. Like, I, yeah, I do, do get very, when I look at the news and things like that, I'm like, oh, God, man, come on. It shouldn't be this complicated. Mm-hmm. I think like John Lennon is like one of my big heroes, and he said if if something's true, it's it's simple, you know, mm-hmm. and like... I was not to get too deep, but I was watching that the debate in the Commons, and it was also complicated. Well, it seemed complicated, and it should just be simple. But anyway, <laughs> so you're going to perform a a piece for us, a, a poem. Yeah. Um, do you want to introduce it and take it away? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is about. Um, I don't know if there's a heaven or not, and. Um, but I do like food, and I, when I had the idea for this, I was like, oh, if I do, if there is a heaven and I get in, what is the food going to be like? And I hope I like it. Uh, so this is called Heaven Food. What's the food like in heaven? 
If all well-behaved living things that die go to heaven, can there be meat up there? Do people imagine eating nice bits of meat in heaven? You know, the bits with a tiny bit of burnt on the cliff face of fat, sitting at a solid square-legged without wobble table, eating a steak with a smooth, heavy, shining fork and a deep, dark brown wooden-handled steak knife. Has the cow that the steak came from died and gone to heaven, only to be killed again? Do they kill dead cows up there so we can eat meat and really be in total heaven? What about the sandwiches? Are there crumbs in heaven? Can you get lurpak? Is it complimentary? Do you still have to peel oranges? Do apples have cores? Or are they all apple? Can you eat right through an apple from one side to the other? Can you eat an apple until it is gone? Where do apples go when they die? Do baked beans come in tins or do they float into your open mouth in a kind of horizontal, unfastened necklace line of warm, non-drip, perfectly cooked baked beans? Where do I go to get my food when I arrive? I will probably need to do a big shop. Or will all my cupboards be full? Will I have cupboards? Who will have put them up for me? Does God put the cupboards up in heaven? I hope so. Maybe all the chickens will be running around laughing and kissing instead of lying dead and refrigerated in the supermarket. Do people kill dead chickens in heaven? Maybe the chickens kill themselves for us and then roll around in flour and then egg and then milk and breadcrumbs and then repeat the process depending on how crispy they want to make themselves. Maybe the chickens get to go up to the next level of heaven, the heaven of heaven, the penthouse suite of heaven. If you have a fly in your kitchen in heaven and you want to get rid of it, what do you do? You have both been accepted into the kingdom of heaven. That's it. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. All right. So, um, you've got the show to write, um, Edinburgh show to yeah. write for, yeah. for next year. Yeah. Um, what else is coming up for you over the next few months? Um, well, next week I'm doing a show called uh, The Horn Section at Soho Theatre. That's on Monday or Tuesday. Um, and then um, in February I'm doing my show about water at the Soho Theatre for three nights. Mm -hmm. That's in February and there's all tickets for that. And The water show starts with um, what is water? Water is the smell of a pint of orange cordial before you've added the cordial. And it goes on from there <laughs> for an hour. Brilliant. And and if anybody um, wants to come in and see your shows, all the details are on roborton.co.uk. That's right, yeah, A-U-T-O-N. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming My in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And best of luck with, with all your shows coming up. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice Christmas. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. And don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at Eastcast Show, or you can listen to our interviews and music online on iTunes and at eastcastshow.com. 
And if you sign up to our monthly newsletter, you'll get all of our audio news straight into your inbox. You're listening to Eastcast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks, Danielle. So I met up with photographer Sid Shelton at the Rivington Place Gallery um, in Shoreditch, where he was showing his photographs as part of an exhibition and an accompanying book called Rock Against Racism. Fans and the bands just mingled into this mosh pit of madness and the, the energy of it all, which was... The other thing that was so exciting about this period was that the music had such phenomenal energy. So get ready up our hearts then. Yeah. Get ready round our wheels then. Rock against racism, it's a dirty monkey schism. What about the children? Get ready up our Birmingham. Get ready. My name's Sid Shelton. I've been a photographer and graphic designer for the last 40 years. And this is a collection of work we've put together which centres around rock against racism from 1977 to 1981, which I was very much involved with as well as being a photographer taking photographs. Ra really existed, and punk as well, and UK reggae, all came together at a time after the sort of liberalism, if you like, of the 60s. There was a gap before the neoliberalism of Thatcher and Blair took over for the next 30 years. And it was in that slight gap there was a fantastic feeling of empowerment. We all thought we could change the world. We really did believe it. Looking back on it, and in retrospect, it was more powerful perhaps than we even imagined then, but it was that feeling of empowerment and you could do what you wanted. You were able to do it, and to work collectively to do it was another very important thing. And we were a bizarre mixture of people, you know. Some people were very political and very left. Some people were not so political but very anti-racist. The thing that united us all was we were anti-racist and we loved music. It was a mixture of artists, photographers, writers, fashion designers, a whole mixture of people who came together. And it, it was a changing mixture because it was not, we, we weren't organised in any sort of hierarchical structure. Whoever really turned up was the Ra Committee, and if you came along for one meeting or came to get involved in one issue of temporary hoarding, that was fine. Some people were there for the whole ride, but others weren't. I'd been living for a while in Australia for three years in Sydney, which is where I first started working as a photographer and developing my photographic eye, if you like, and came back to London and found it quite a different place than what I'd left. Every year, the Notting Hill Carnival was turned into a riot. The police were rampant in terms of arresting people like the Foster family. But a good example of how institutionally racist the British, or the Metropolitan Police in particular, were at that time. They raided in May of 77, 19 houses in New Cross and Lewisham, arresting young people, as young, one as young as 12, all accused of being muggers with absolutely no evidence against any of them. It was clearly an intimidatory attack. And interestingly, according to Paul Foote, who wrote about this particular family, the Fosters, they were quite significant because David Foster became the leader of the... Lewisham Defence Committee and their living room became the impromptu headquarters for that campaign. 
According to Paul Foote, the operation was, was codenamed ONH, which apparently stood for Operation Nigger Hunt, which gives you an idea of <laughs> precisely what the intention was. But it was that whole campaign about mugging which really led to the events in Lewisham, which turned into something of a riot when the National Front decided to put a very provocative march through what was clearly one of the most successful multicultural areas of London. And there was probably about 120 of them, but they were protected by a quarter of the Metropolitan Police and the entire mounted division. And this set of photographs here are all from that day. This one which I like particularly, which is dark as hell, was a well-known activist speaking on the on top of the toilet block at Clifton Rise. We have become the own shapers of our destiny as from today. But you see here, young fascist Zeke Hylian, protected by the police, and, and we were just laughing up there when I was doing the photographs. It was quite incredible. But it was also the first time, see, that riot shields were used in mainland Britain. They'd been used in Northern Ireland, of course, but they'd never been used on the mainland. So it was the beginning of the militarisation of the police force. And there were probably 120 national fronters, but there were something like five to 10,000 anti-racists from all over the country as well as local people and from other parts of London as well. And it was a battle which went on for the whole day. It was an incredible event. And I remember going home absolutely exhausted after photographing for, I think, 12 hours. That was a very significant point. It was also the point where a whole group of people decided after that that the National Front were becoming a serious threat. And they were getting, in the GLC elections that May, they had in, in Tower Hamlets polled 19% of the vote. So that this was an openly racist party was actually gaining respectability. And this was the, the catalyst which really propelled people to take much more decisive action. Punk and reggae, which we all loved, both of those. And they were both, in a sense, rebel musics. And they were music of resistance and of get-up stand-up. So there was a wonderful story which... I think it was Red Saunders told it first, is that when, when this crowd was amassing here, one of these houses here, and that old lady opened her windows and put two speakers out and put on Bob Marley's Get Up Stand Up, and everybody, the whole crowd cheered and started dancing. It was um, something of a festival in that sense. So it was a great camaraderie and spirit. Get up, stand up. Rock Against Racism was, I think, instrumental in bringing together black and white groups. And previously, black bands tended to play to black audiences and white bands tended to play to white audiences. I remember going to the Four Aces in, in Dalston, and I think I was the only white person there um, because I love reggae. We decided to go to work with the Anti-Nazi League to produce what we called the Carnival, and we wanted to have a massive demonstration from the centre of London to Tower Hamlets, where the National Front had been so successful in the local council elections, or the GLC elections. And everybody thought we were slightly crazy and said, no, nobody will march seven miles, which is what it is. And I was put in charge of the raw 
contingent, if you like, in Trafalgar Square. And at that time, I was living in Charing Cross Road. And I remember worrying greatly whether people would actually come to the square or just go straight to the park and wait for the bands to come on. All night, I could hear people coming down Charing Cross Road. And I couldn't resist. I got up at about 7 and went down to the square. And there was 10,000 people there at 7 o'clock in the morning. And they were oh, the most extraordinary people. I mean, there were punks from Edinburgh, from Glasgow, from... Bristol, from Swansea, all over the country. It was this wonderful mixture of people that came, and Rasters and Dreads. It was just fantastic. Yeah, get ready, run out, bills, then. The rock against racism, it's a documentation. What about the children? Get ready, up and burning, mama. But the march itself, we turned into an event. We didn't want the march to be like previous marches that we were all used to, like the anti-Vietnam War marches or whatever. We wanted it to be a carnival. And so we had lorries with bands on. Misty and Roots led the procession on the back of a lorry. The Roots were on the back of a lorry. The Piranhas from Brighton were on a lorry. It was this fantastic festival. And Virgin Records, for example, gave us 200,000 plastic whistles, which we threw out from the lorries till everybody was whistling and shouting. And a lady I used to buy cigarettes from used to smoke in those days in Bethnal Green Road, Mrs Greer. She, afterwards, when I went to buy some cigarettes, she said she stood and watched for six hours as the procession went past. And she, she'd fought against Oswald Mosley in the 1930s. She described it as the best day of her life to see all these young people. That was a measure for me of the success of the day that this old Jewish lady came out to cheer on punks which she'd never seen the likes of in her life before. The mix of music was also quite wonderful. It was opened by Patrick Fitzgerald, who was a Walthamstow punk poet, who didn't go down too well. I hadn't got to the park by then, but I'm, so I missed that. And then it was X-ray specs, then Steel Pulse. I didn't photograph it because I was on a break, but I watched it when Steel Pulse came onto the stage in their Ku Klux Klan outfits. It was just daunting. It was quite Swana, fantastic. Right? Straight to the head of the National Front and straight to the head of the Ku Klux Klan leader, David Duke. Kazwa. Buzra! And then the Clash, and then the Tom Robinson band, and then there was a big jam at the end. And it was a resounding success. I mean, we did expect 20,000 people, and we had a PA big enough for 20,000, and we, there was at least 100,000. And it really kicked off the summer of carnivals. We did other carnivals and with Elvis Costello, Aswad, Stiff Little Fingers in Rockwell Park in Brixton, and that was 150,000 people came to that. So it was rock against racism. The show was on the road, if you like. Police at the intriguing and exciting periods in 20th century British history when punk and reggae came together and took a political stance against the rise of racism in this country and it's visually the story is here we've after many years managed to piece together the actual story in pictures exhibition is now over but Sid's, uh, Sid Shelton's book of photographs called Rock Against Racism is available to buy online via uh, Autograph ABP who published the book and put the exhibition on 
Um, I think it's a perfect Christmas present. I know we're not doing Christmas on this show, <laughs> but I think it's a good present. And if you jump in quick, they're throwing in two original raw badges so you can get a piece of memorabilia from the 1970s from that moment. Um, so to keep on a musical theme, we have Amy Adele with us in the studio. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. Um, we're very pleased to have you here. So um, you're on the show because of a series of events and I, I like I like it when serendipity kind of makes that happen. So explain sure. to us how how you got here. Well, I was performing at the Lion Coffee and Records in Lower Clapton. And I think one of your colleagues, was it? Anna. Anna, yes. that, that's right. And she was there uh, seeing uh, one of the other performances who also came on your show. Uh, a really great performer, Portuguese girl. Bernardo. That's, Bernardo. That, that's right, yeah. yeah. And and so as a result of that, we ended up connecting, and then uh, and here you are, and here I am, yeah, fantastic. And, and you live in East London, that's right, yeah, I do. Um, so have you been doing this kind of acoustic uh, circuit for a while? Are you are you on that um, London circuit? There seems to be the, these key places where people play. Yeah, a little bit. I I've been doing some of my own music, and then also. Uh, with the band as well so I'd say some of it on the circuit and other places which are more random uh, at certain at certain events etc and, and putting on some of my own nights with some other artists and creatives so but it all it all goes really well because that area is very supportive of uh, performing arts and arts itself so it's quite easy to find you know nice friendly venues that are you know, open to all that stuff so um, so you obviously write your own songs. Yes. Um, and I believe you're self-taught musician. Yeah, I'm so when... self-taught. I, I, I don't read music, but uh, it was started off, I was singing, uh, I guess, with other bands. And there was a lot I felt, you know, that was sort of ready to come out. So I I got a guitar and then I uh, got a uh, keyboard and, you know, just started to slowly find my way I guess so yeah. and then from that you're now kind of looking into music therapy yes that's also part of what I do uh, I think music's a incredibly powerful thing and and shouldn't be underestimated and I think in the world today anything can be used in a positive way to help other people should be used and I'd like to be able to extend music and hopefully uh, incorporate that into prisons, schools, hospitals, anywhere where people feel uh, maybe uh, trapped or or need some sort of assistance in releasing something. I think music can do that in a very, very positive way. And it's inexpensive too. Uh, and it's non-judgmental. You don't have to read or write. So, uh, And hopefully I'll get other musicians involved with that. Yeah, sounds sounds like a really good project to to kind of start being involved with, and yeah. and I think also as a musician you can get a lot out of that. Just yeah. back into your music. Yeah, for sure. I think it it all kind of goes round um, in a circular motion. I think that if you're doing something for the right reason, uh, it, it will always be taken for the right reason, and it can only um, uh, doing something positive can only help other people. You know. Uh, 
I think if anything I can do something and then I should be doing that. So have you uh, got any releases um, coming up or are, are you on a label? Uh, I'm currently not on a label. Uh, I have a new EP release. It will be sort of uh, around February time. And I'm also uh, working with another producer and experimenting with sort of remixing some of my music in a slightly more, I guess, dancey um slightly electro way so that'd be quite interesting too because it's always good to work with other people and see how what their perception is of what you're creating and to release it you know let it go and see where it goes so I'm looking forward to doing both of those things and seeing how they turn out excellent so you're going to play a couple of tracks I think back to back okay um so what are you gonna (laughs) what are you gonna play for us okay so the first song which is on the EP that's currently released um on iTunes and uh, She is the Sun and followed by Death is um, Death in Venice Okay, take it away Thank you very much Once upon a time, I thought the world had taken me away. So far, I thought that I wasn't here to stay. Then I met her in a storm on a Took on what what it is, world takes on what it means, world takes on what it gives, and it was given like a star. Once upon a time, I thought I was gone. She brought me the sun She brought me the sun She is what I thought I had lost She is, she is She is life
so much that was brilliant and, and if you want to hear more from Amy you can listen to her um, on soundcloud.com forward slash Amy O'Dell that's O-D-E-L-L you're listening to East Cast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and don't forget get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Cast Show check out all of our interviews listening music online at eastcastshow.com and on iTunes and sign up to our monthly newsletter and you'll get all of this straight to your inbox uh, next up, we are joined by Jacob and Kennedy from Take Back the City, an organisation asking for normal Londoners to nominate themselves for London Mayor. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Great to have you here. Thanks. Um, Thank so, you. Jacob, you're one of the founders. That's right, yeah. Um, and so for those of you who haven't heard about what we're doing, our listeners, um, what you're doing, sorry, what, are, what is Take Back the City? Why was it set up? Okay, so um, Take Back the City was set up because we think that London's a, an amazing place to live, um, a great city. It's a vibrant, energetic city. Loads of people from all over the world have chosen to make it their home. It's got great creative projects, cultural projects, um, you know, uh, small businesses, and it's got a really good political scene as well. Um, you had a, a programme on about rock against racism, and obviously London's got a strong tradition of anti-racism and Absolutely. standing up against injustice, but... Um, a lot of people feel like the city which they've kind of helped create is being taken away from them, um, sort of socially in the sense that ordinary people can't really afford to live in London anymore um, because of house prices and because of the fact that wages aren't keeping pace with uh, with those prices. But also politically, people feel like their city isn't being run in their interests and it's being run in the interests of like a small number of basically billionaires and property investors who want to kind of use this city to... You know, extract wealth, buy some property, keep it empty, and and uh, and sort of contribute nothing to the city. So we set up Take Back the City to kind of address this, and the idea is quite simple. We're kind of trying to do things um, the opposite way round to how political parties do them. Um, okay. Because a lot of us are, you know, we, we've kind of got disillusioned with party politics, and uh, so instead of us kind of coming up with a list of um, policies and asking people to vote for us. Um, we're creating what we call a people's manifesto, which basically means we're going out and asking people what they want to change about their city. Um, people that don't normally have a voice in politics, um, young people, migrants groups, uh, union groups, um, just ordinary Londoners, and we're asking them that, what they want to see change. And then we hope to find, um, as you mentioned, um, some ordinary Londoners to actually stand to be candidates for London Mayor and for the London Assembly. Um, uh, to sort of take on the sort of vested interests and political parties who we don't think really do uh, represent ordinary people. It's a brilliant idea, um, and my demand for the People's Manifesto was about rent control. Okay. But what Excellent. are the most popular issues you've seen looking at that? Um, 
most popular issues. So one of the things that uh, Take Back the City does is reach out to um, hundreds of Londoners. Um, what's that look like? That looks like um, one to two hour workshops where we have very much two way conversations. In these workshops, um, things like uh, policing, housing, um, rent controls, um, minimum wage, living wage, these are some of the things um, that comes up. Um, I'm a young black student and I thought that was me being that was very important for me to claim my political voice um, because I feel like I'm part of the group that tends to be affected by the politics of London but at the same time alienated from it um, and I feel like it was important for me to claim my political voice um, and I had so when I graduated I had to move out of London because it was too expensive like leading up to graduating applying for jobs wasn't getting graduate jobs what so my option was to work in a pub for minimum wage on the expenses of living in London that just wasn't an option for me so I moved out um, before I graduated my parents moved out of London couldn't afford it you right. know what I mean so and that's just one story that's part of Take yeah. Back City everyone in Take Back City has a story and we are a collective of people that have lots of stories to be told and that are not being heard. Um, we were just at, well, a couple of weeks ago, we were doing an event at the Astor Community Hub in Newham, right next to London City Airport, and people were telling, um, telling their stories. Um, one of the co- discussions I had with someone that lived close by was about um, how difficult it was living next to London City Airport. Right. You know what I mean? And so one of the, one of the candidates, Khan, who's um, running for Labour, He's supporting ex- the expansion of London City Airport. Okay. Now, if he went down to the community and listened to their community and actually acknowledged their stories, he wouldn't be doing that. Uh-huh. Why is he doing that? You know what I mean? So I really like this idea of um, you bringing together sort of thousands of individual Londoners' stories. Right. Um, so right now, nominations are open for the take back the city mayoral candidate so any londoner can put themselves forward as long as they as long as they agree with your principles um i imagine running for mayor is no easy task Mm. (laughs) especially if you're not a politician absolutely what sort of support will you be providing for the successful candidate that's a really good question one thing to say is it's not just mayor there's also there's also the london assembly absolutely Yeah. yeah um which is uh the way that works is it's kind of like a little parliament for london but the good thing about that is um you only need to get 5% of the vote to get a candidate elected. So, um, And that's not such a big deal as the mayor, so we're hoping that some people will be up for that. In terms of support, um, you know, uh, we're going to... Well, we're a very supportive group of people. Um, there's around about 100... A network of about 100 activists involved. That's nice. About sort of 30 at the core. And, um, uh, you know, we've, we've uh, already provided a lot of training to people to help them with kind of media stuff. Um, and uh, the other thing that we're hoping to do which I should mention, is uh, is raise a load of money. Because <laughs> as you said, it's not easy for um, kind of outsider candidates. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the other candidates will be spending close to half a million pounds. Right. So we're hoping to raise £30,000, which is really just enough just to for the deposits to be able to stand, um, let alone any campaign costs. Um, so, yeah, we'll give financial support as well as um, getting out there and basically what, doing what we've been doing, which is talking to people and kind of spreading the message and asking people what they want. And how are you planning to raise that amount of money? Have you? I'm sure you've got some ideas. Mm. What, what well, do you think? Because, um, okay, look, so the people that are alienated from politics are that way for a reason. Like, Londoners, ordinary, ordinary Londoners are busy. We have to work a lot of hours to be able to stay in London. And so the people that we're representing just tend to not have the money to contribute to a campaign like this. Yeah. And so there's some of the ways that we're looking to do that is um, do some fundraising events, try to pull some resources online, you know, really push the crowdfunding um, and just trying to work our like, not local networks. And if people and listening money. now want to donate, 
to the mm. to the crowdfunding? What, how did they go about yeah. that? Yeah, good question. So um, we're actually launching our crowdfunder properly um, in January after the new year because Christmas is not you know the best time to be asking people for money. But um, nevertheless, if people fancy giving us a Christmas gift, they can do that at our website, <laughs> um, takebackthecity.org. But as I say, in, in January, we're launching a crowdfunder, big crowdfunder for about a month um, under the hashtag AnotherLondon30K. Um, and that's the time when we're really hoping that people will be able to, um, you know, show us some generosity and uh, make the London mayoral race a bit more interesting and a bit more competitive and um, giving a, a different voice, one that represents ordinary people. Yeah, Definitely. Guys, I wish I could ask you so many more questions, um, but if you want to know more about Take Back the City, uh, watch this space for January, the crowdfunding campaign. Go to takebackthecity.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you very Cheers. much. And now we wanted to introduce you to uh, a radio pre- producer called Julia Lork, who's uh, who, who we've featured work of hers on our show before. But we thought, you know, instead of just playing her work, we wanted her to come in and introduce her work herself. So, Julia, welcome. Hello. Really Thanks good for to me. really good to have you here. Um, you've got a couple of pieces. I'm not. Sh- have we got time to play them both or one of them? I think because we want to hear yes. another song from Amy, don't we? Yes. Um, so. Uh, we, we are running out of time. So which uh, would you like to play for us today? Oh, that's really hard. Oh, um, yeah. Maybe play the one, um, the Epsilonograph. Okay. And so do you want to... Six yes. No. No? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the other one. Okay. Thank you. I am Stan Lurie. Uh, the machine that we made is the Epsilonograph, which is an optoelectronic synthesizer. It makes sounds from intricate light sources that we create that pass into a solar panel which is uh, creating electricity which employ. And what are you trying to achieve with it? It's a post-digital synthesizer so we're trying to energize a form of music that will uh, de-digitize people's experience of the world but enhance it and essentially create music by uh, turning the kind of audio microscope into a form of sound and music. I had the idea um, uh, 15 years ago and I needed to buy an oscilloscope and I couldn't afford an oscilloscope and then I went to a pub and I said I need to make something with an oscilloscope and they said go to the uh, London Hack Space which is a community workshop and you pay as much as you can afford or you know, 15, 20 pounds a month and you have access to a 24 hour workshop with a wide variety of tools which you can get uh, training for very, very cheaply your eyes will be opened. So it's a fantastic, fantastic thing that people can make what they want to make. See, I'm quite the, the purist, so we wanted to have a device that would accurately convert the light that goes into the device into sound. So we were using a calibration uh, method where we would take a, a disc, the primary source is transparent discs with a mixed media, uh, which is half black and the other half had very thin uh, lines so we wanted to spin this and, and as it span it would create a square wave and with the thinness of the lines we would see notches in that and so we wanted to see how precise how thin a notch our device could see with an oscilloscope um, we're, we're doing all kinds of materials this is the sound of acetate and glue gun uh, this is the sound of a formula programmed into a laser cutter this is some diffraction filter that was ripped from some old laptop screens. Uh, this is some burnt acrylic. 
This is some tin foil with scratches in it. It's, it's endless, the scope. Um, but we want to make sure that we're, we're, we're getting as much sound as we can from the material, not from noise, and, and so it's high fidelity. And you can see there's quite pretty patterns coming out the other side. So it, it also creates a, a, a sort of a laser show based on the sounds that are coming out. And we're looking at the option of doing a very basic Kickstarter product, or perhaps we might go high-end and um, sell um, some units to producers and, and create a very, very high-end unit that will be MIDI-controlled and have super high fidelity. So uh, we're open to people who want to work with us. So, Julia, you, um, that interview came from the Turbine Festival, didn't it? How yeah. did that come about? Oh, um, I just went out to find some stories with my friend Anna, and, um, yeah, we found this group, Acoustics, from the London Hackspace, and they had lots of exhibit. This one was um, Stan Leary's, and it was really popular because you had um, lots of remote controls and laser pointers, and you just pointed them at this magical black box, and it created all those weird but fascinating sounds. And is that your kind of area of interest when you're working in radio? Um, not really. So my background is science communication. That's mm-hmm. how I got into radio, because I had this amazing lecturer, Gareth Mitchell, at Imperial College, and he opened up this whole new world of speech-based radio for me. Um, yeah, but everything that has to do with electronic music or creating mm-hmm. sounds is kind of gold for radio, I think. Yeah, so. definitely. So hopefully you'll be hearing more electronic inspired sounds from you uh, in future shows i mean i really hope so oh so it's pretty much uh, the end of this crazy action-packed show um <laughs> so uh you've been listening to eastcast on resonance 104.4 fm uh, you can tell us what you think of the show on Twitter and Facebook at eastcastshow.com, uh, Eastcast Show, sorry, and check out all our interviews and music online on eastcastshow.com. But before we go, um, I just got a little personal plug. I'm DJing um, at the launch of a new social enterprise space in Dalston called Bootyard uh, on Ashwin Street on Friday. So come down and drink some. Uh, craft beer and things like that (laughs) and uh, listen to some good music Um, I think that's it Uh, we are going to uh, say Happy New Year goodbye Um, Merry Christmas Merry Christmas see you in (laughs) 2016 Um, and yes and all of that and um, Amy Odell is going to play us out take it away Amy
Crashing down to hear the song.